This is Mornings with Simi on 980 CKNW. Well, let's talk about this new survey that shows British Columbians who have chronic conditions are actually avoiding care because of the pandemic. And we are talking about serious conditions here like diabetes, heart disease, in some cases, even cancer. So what has been happening? Well, Dr. Tom Elliott is the medical director for BC Diabetes, he also works at Vancouver General Hospital, where he has seen this problem firsthand and joins us now. Dr. Elliott, thank you for joining us. Good morning, Simi. It's good to be on the show. So what have you seen? Are people actually avoiding treatment? Well, that's what the statistics show. I'm, uh, you know, in in my office, I'm a diabetes specialist. Um, We've embraced virtual care and and all of our regulars we continue to see. But the evidence suggests that lots and lots of people living with diabetes and other chronic conditions that you mentioned aren't seeing their doctor. And do they say why they're not seeing their doctor? Well, I think there's... No, I don't know. They don't. But, um, you know, I think there's the general fear that that pervades everything with COVID. So, you know, everybody's social distancing, um, people with anxiety uh, even more so. There's a distrust uh, in virtual care, you know, telephone and Zoom communication. So... The, the net effect is that a proportion of people with chronic disease just aren't getting to see their doctor and their care teams. Now, Dr. Elliott, in your work for BC Diabetes and at VGH, then I'm sure you, you treat a lot of people. How challenging is it already to treat these conditions, let alone in pandemic conditions? Well, it's, it's, it's challenging. You know, when, when doctors talk about chronic conditions, the implication is that there's no cure. In the diabetes field, however, there are dramatically new and effective treatments that um, that people who aren't seeing their physicians are missing out on. You know, there's a, there's a wonderful shot called semaglutide that helps weight loss and lower sugar that uh, Pharmacare approved last December. That uh, that you know that I really I prescribe to every single patient of mine who who's overweight. Um, you know, so so. They are missing out. I can't speak for areas in which I'm not an expert, but I do know that there are advances in medicine across the board in, in, in chronic disease. Are, are you concerned about what's going to happen You know, when things start to perhaps normalize? Do you think more people will be showing up with problems? I, think, I, I don't think the problems necessarily are going to increase, but what, what will happen is that they won't decrease the way that they would be expected if people did have access to these therapies. You know, there are other medications in, in diabetes. I mentioned, uh, you know, there's a, there's a pill called empagliflozin that, that's been around a while. But it also helps people with kidney disease. And, and I'm concerned that people living with chronic kidney disease are missing out on, on this drug as well. What kind, what kind of what would the symptoms be, I guess, Dr. Elliott, for people if they've been putting it off perhaps because they're concerned or, you know, they, they think they're okay, they don't want to get into the system? What kind of what symptoms should they be worried about? Well, the, the, the problem with diabetes, my area of expertise, is that there aren't any symptoms until the sugar's quite high. You know, if, if, if somebody is getting up at night to pee more often, they're losing weight or they're thirsty, then those are cardinal symptoms of diabetes. But most people with the beginnings of diabetes don't have symptoms at all. 
but most of them are deconditioned. They're overweight, they're underfit. So, you know, if, if your listeners are out there and, and those, uh, those features describe them, then they need to do something. And, you know, quite apart from seeing the doctor, which is what I guess the theme of this talk is, it's, it's doing what's good for them. And that is, you know, the other, one of the other things, Cindy, I didn't mention is, is a dramatic change in, in our understanding of diet and how we should go about it. We know, for instance, that low-carb diets are dramatically effective in diabetes. We've, this has been proven through the, the widespread availability of continuous glucose meters. This, this is another technology um, that hopefully BCPharmacare is going to approve very quickly. So we know that low-carb diets are dramatically effective. Um, we know that uh, restricted time eating or intermittent fasting is dramatically effective at weight loss. So that's a diet where you, you give yourself eight or ten hours a day during which you're allowed to eat, and at the other times you're not allowed to eat. So don't you know? Th that's a pretty simple diet. It just is restrict your eating to, you know, in my case and in a lot of my clients' case, between 12 noon and 8 p.m. So you can you can eat between then, but after that you can't. So huh. these are big advances in, in that, uh, that I think should be widely adopted. Well, that's fascinating stuff. Dr. Elliott, thank you for your time this morning. Thanks very much, Simi. That is Dr. Tom Elliott, Medical Director for BC Diabetes and Clinician at Vancouver General Hospital, talking about how the survey has found that people who have chronic conditions are potentially avoiding care because of the pandemic. Conditions like diabetes, he said, and heart disease and even cancer, potentially worsening those conditions. As he said, we've, we've made such advances in the treatments of heart disease and, and diabetes. If people are ignoring the symptoms or perhaps don't want to go to the hospital, uh, they could just be avoiding a chance to definitely start feeling better. This is Mornings with Simi. Right now, let's highlight a great local business that is raising money to support the victims and families that are connected to that horrific stabbing spree in North Vancouver. Katie Hook is the owner of Katie Marie Cakes. Her fundraiser has already raised more than $6,000. She joins us now. Hi, Katie. Hi, how are you today? I am good. Thank you, Katie. I checked out your website. Your cookies look amazing. Thank you. <laughs> so how did you decide to get involved? Um, I honestly saw what happened and was horrified and I was, I saw Central Lawnsdale's logo on Instagram and I thought, oh, I can make a cookie out of that. <laughs> and then I was with my sister and I just decided, we, she kind of convinced me being like, why don't you just do it? And I did it. <laughs> well, it sounds like you did a good job. So tell me about the cookie <laughs> yeah. then and where is the money going and what are you doing with it? So I have a set of six cookies in a box it's three heart cookies one lynn valley strong cookie one tree cookie and one lynn valley strong cookie um and all the money is going to the victims of the attack it's on the gofundme and we've raised over seven thousand dollars i checked this morning <laughs> wow that's amazing yeah. so you're selling a lot of cookies Oh my, so many. <laughs> it's overwhelming. I was just going to say, like, how are you dealing with that? This probably probably took off a bit more than you thought it was going to. I honestly thought I was going to get like 50 orders. <laughs> so it's definitely taken off a little bit more. Um, I, and I work a full-time job, so it's just been every second it's been cookie. <laughs> <laughs> so safe to say uh, multiples of 50 as opposed to just about 50 orders. 
Oh, about, I think someone ordered like 26 boxes for <gasps> the pay it forward boxes yesterday to go to the victims, their families, the first responders, and the businesses that were helped that day. So <laughs> that's just one order. <laughs> that's amazing though, Katie. Has it really given you a glimpse of kind of what's been going on in the community too? Oh my God. It's just community is so great. And it's given me kind of hope in humanity, <laughs> to be honest with you, after this hard year. Yeah, I guess that is the plus side, the good side, right? Yeah. Is when you see the nice things that people do. Um, tell me about your cookies. They look incredibly intricate. How long does it take you to make each one? Um, well, I've kind of, I've been doing this for like three years. I've been out of culinary school for six years, so I've kind of gotten the hang of it, but it still takes a little while. Each cookie probably takes like two or three minutes. That's time consuming. It definitely time consuming. So is this, is this your full-time job? Um, no, it's actually my side business. <laughs> I have a full-time job at a bakery in like downtown Vancouver. Oh my goodness. Okay, so your yeah. side business is really taking over here, which is nice because that means that people are being not just supportive of what happened and the people involved, but also for a local business like yours. Oh, super supportive. Like small businesses really need it right now, and this is huge for me. <laughs> okay. It's very, very, very um I feel the support. <laughs> okay, good. Where can people find out more information, Katie? Um, so I have everything on Instagram, which is at Katie Marie Cakes, or on my website at katiemariecakes.com. All right, we will check that out. Thanks so much for your time this morning. And listen, good luck. Keep baking. Awesome. Thank you so much. Okay, that is Katie Hook. She's the owner of Katie Marie Cakes. Check out her website. It's Katie is in K-A-T-I-E. And uh, she is baking cookies, like a limited box of six really special cookies. Those kind of intricate cookies that you see them make on like cooking competition shows. Uh, And she is selling them to support uh, the victims and families connected to the horrific stabbing spree in North Vancouver. And she has been very grateful, as she said, overwhelmed with orders for these. Thought that she would sell about 50. Oh, yeah, she's going to definitely surpass that multiple times over and uh, has raised so far more than $7,000 to help out. So good for her. Help her out, too. Katie Marie Cakes. Just check her out online. This is Mornings with Simi. And now we're also going to talk about the housing market. Fair to say that in Metro Vancouver in particular, housing has never been less affordable and the fact that we have seen these incredibly low interest rates during, you know, this time of the pandemic, well, that appears to have made the situation even worse. Well, to talk more about this, we're joined now by Ben Rabideau, who's the president of market, the market research firm North Cove Advisors, just one of the experts that have been alarmed by this recent trend. Ben, thank you very much for being here. Good morning, Simi. My pleasure. What really got you worried when you were looking at the market? Well, this is not a new story. We've certainly seen the housing market in Vancouver has been bulletproof for years. Uh, it, it certainly appears to be out of reach for um, many people with local incomes. And so there's, there's been uh, a number of uh, alarming statistics over the years that certainly we've certainly been looking at and watching. Uh, I think most recently, though, has just been the strength of the market coming out of um, the recession and how little inventory has been coming online. And so we've seen just a dramatic tightening in, I'd say, the last, really the last year in Metro Vancouver. And it's just driven these incredible prices. And so it's uh, it's something that at this point is getting to be uh, 
you know, once again, quite alarming. Yeah. Do you worry about it when you see it? Do you think that there's the potential for a, a tumble? Well, there's always the potential. I think at this point, we really do need to see new supply coming online. So, you know, I, I was advocating in the past that some of the measures that the government brought in with regards to um, taxing foreign capital, for example, or tightening mortgage regulation for domestic buyers, those all made sense, I felt, at the time. Um, but we're at the point now where if we keep doing the same thing, if we just keep tightening uh, the demand side of the equation without trying to do more to bring about more supply. It just feels like we're doing more of the same thing. And the, the real, and, and, and that hasn't worked in the past. It, what we've seen are these sort of temporary blips in the market that just resume their upward trend. And so, you know, it, it's one of those things where we should stop doing the thing that hasn't worked and try to find a way to bring about the supply that we need in the market right now. Right. Are there other things do you think exacerbating the situation too, Ben? Like I, I've talked to many people about the whole process for even trying to buy a home, like the, the way that offers are taken and, and submitted, like it just feels like it ratchets up the, um, the unaffordability because people are bidding higher and higher, and higher in a desperate attempt to get a home. Well, no question there. And I was quoted recently in uh, the Vancouver Sun talking about this, exam- this exact thing. So I, I agree with you. The blind bidding process is uh, just an absolute disaster in Canada. I don't know why we allow this. So, you know, it's not uncommon. When I talk to realtor contacts in this space. It's not uncommon that you hear these stories where you have multiple bids on a property, but one bid comes in 5 or 10% above everything else, which is hundreds of thousands of dollars. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and so, you know, that buyer has no idea how many bidders they're actually up against and what the next bid would be below them. Right. And so no rational buyer would pay five or 10 percent above the next bid. And so what I've said is I don't understand why we can't mandate an automatic escalation clause whereby a bidder would say, I'm willing to pay X dollars for this house. And, and then it just goes in increments. So let's just, just use round numbers. If, if the buyer says, I'm willing to pay up to a million dollars on this house, and the next bid under them is a buyer who says, I'm willing to pay 950000 well, then the escalation clause would just kick up the bid by $5,000, and the winning bid would be nine fifty five instead of the million dollars. And so you don't end up with a situation where these people are paying these complete, you know, out of touch prices that are way above the next bid without knowing it, right? right? It's really unfair for everybody involved. And I don't understand why that's like, I really can't see a rational argument in favor of this blind bidding process. Oh, it's so stressful for people who are trying to get that house too. Uh, what do you think is the holdup to that? Is it obviously the, the sellers, right? Like they, they want as much money as possible. Yeah, but it's a tricky thing, right? Because then those sellers oftentimes are moving laterally in the market. They they are selling and then they have to buy again as well. And so they're put in, in many cases, in the same situation where they're back into having to, you know, go into this blind bidding process themselves. So I don't really see how it how it helps everyone. It is a, a, a provincial um, piece of legislation, so it's not really something that the feds can mandate, but I'm not I'm not sure why the real estate boards aren't out advocating something that brings about more transparency in this in this space. Right, you're talking about more transparency in the purchase process. So I know that there's also I get stories from people all the time, Ben, too. People saying, "Well, realtors like to underprice something on on like in, on purpose so that they generate a lot of interest and then they get a lot of offers, knowing that it's going to sell way above the asking." 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, look, that's been a strategy that's worked for years. And I mean, there's nothing inherently wrong with that strategy, if that's how you want to go about doing it. I mean, it, it works online. It's worked for eBay for years. I mean, there's nothing wrong with the strategy. It's just that, like I said, it, it creates these sort of strange dislocations in the market. And the reality is, you know, you get one very aggressive bidder that's willing to pay, you know, 10% above the next bid. Well, that becomes the new comparable for the neighborhoods, right? And so, you know, then everything else gets priced off of that sale, right? And so, so there are some, I mean, look, it's not a healthy dynamic. I, I do want to be clear, though, I'm, it's not a silver bullet, right? If we bring about more transparent bidding process, like I would look at the example of Australia. Australia has perhaps the most transparent bidding process. You literally stand out in front of the house and it's an auction, right? right. And you know, you know exactly what all the bids are. But that market is very hot and, and they've, they've seen prices escalate quite dramatically as well. So, you know, I'm not saying that this is the silver bullet that brings about some transparency, but it's one of those pieces of like low hanging fruit where it's like, well, why wouldn't we deal with that? Because this is just a silly way to do things. Oh, that's a good point. Ben, thanks so much for your time this morning. My pleasure. That is Ben Rabideau, who's the president of the market research firm North Cove Advisors, talking about the real estate market. This is Mornings with Simi. You know, we've talked a lot about restaurant owners who have been struggling to cope during this pandemic. Things are open, things are closed, patio open, patio closed, whatever the case may be. But owners are one thing, their employees are also dealing with even more issues, right? A lot less financial security too. So we thought, let's talk to someone who's been trying to navigate that situation. Shiva Reddy uh, joins us now, a restaurant worker who is essentially without work right now. Shiva, thank you for joining us this morning. Thanks for having me. So you thought you had been going back to work, right, until these new orders changed things? Oh, absolutely. Uh, I took a break from restaurants. I tried to pivot. I tried to do other work, um, even though I'm very skilled and specialized in my wine skills. Um, And on my first day back was the first day that we found out that we had to close our restaurant. So what happens now? We don't know. Um, We're told that it's going to be approximately three weeks, but we've... We have the wisdom. We've been through this once before where it happened to be months. Um, and there were supports back then that were offered. But this time, there was a, a really serious uh, finger pointing stigmatization towards restaurant workers who were just trying their best and accommodating like they always do. And, and we got shut down with no help whatsoever. So you're saying that like right now is very different from the last time this happened? Absolutely. Last time, there's a bit more of a collective helping of the government. We were all navigating through this together, but this time it's just been, it's been so appalling. Um, we've been told that we are the problem and that we shouldn't blow it. Um, when we have been actually the most accommodating, I would say during the pandemic, we've been trying so hard to meet the needs of guests. We've also been trying so hard to stick with regulations. We respect regulations. We like the restrictions. We want to keep our staff safe. We want to keep guests safe, but when we're told that we're not doing good enough, when all we have been doing is going beyond, uh, that's really, really hurtful. Right. So what do you, I guess, what goes through your head then, Shiva, when you see stories like the ones from the last few days of those two restaurants that were definitely flouting the rules? Oh my gosh. But like that's, it's just like any, any bad apple that will happen, but that's not everybody. You have so many people who are trying really hard. It's their livelihoods on the line. Um, Really great initiatives have popped up. Like, I uh, created a foundation where we're offering free meals to anybody who needs help in restaurants who are out of a job. But it's really unfortunate because that paints a very broad stroke. And and also restaurant other restaurants don't support what they're doing. 
Now, what was it like working during the pandemic? Because I know that a lot of restaurants, they, they did everything right, right? They had the plastic, the partitioning, everything in there. What were the people like, though, Shiva? Were they going by the rules? Was everybody, were people understanding? That's an interesting one because <laughs> I love my guests. I think my clients are the best. Um, but oftentimes, you don't know who's walking through your door as well. Um, restaurants, we worked so hard to make sure that every single protocol was there. We spent so much money that we already were hemorrhaging because we weren't making any money at all during COVID. And then having to put up plastic barriers, having to get rid of tables and really, really lose profits that way. We had guests coming in who, yes, were respectful. Most of them were respectful, but a lot of them were not respectful. And even though the rules are to dine with your household, there was also just no rules too to navigate either. It was just so loose and we all kind of had to figure it out ourselves. And I think restaurants are great. Uh, but again, some, some guests coming through the doors would be disrespectful. They would come with people they've never met before. They would come with their friends. They would come with five other people from other households. Um, and, and then they would be disrespectful in the restaurant. They wouldn't want to wear a mask. Um, most people did, but there were people who wouldn't. And especially when you're drinking, you tend to get a little bit more blurry and a little bit more loose. So it was really unfortunate that we, we felt unsafe serving people sometimes. And we still had to do it because that's, our livelihood. And that's also what brings us joy to take care of people. That must've been so tricky. I wondered about that myself, Shiva, right? From going to a couple of restaurants and looking around the room going, clearly everybody here is not in the same household. How tricky did that make it for you? Oh, it's so hard. My mom, my mom has dementia. She has dialysis. I take care of her. My stakes are so incredibly high. I have no room for failure in this situation because if I get sick, nobody's taking care of her. And just like me, there's so many people in my situation where the stakes are high. This is my livelihood. I need to make money, but also I'm being restricted in wage uh, with reduced wage and hours. And it's so hard already. I had no choice to do that. Um, And a lot of people feel like that. We're scared when we come into work, but we know that the environment we create for our staff is super safe. We just don't know what happens when other people come in and they're disrespectful and they don't realize that this isn't just a fun time. This is like, this is our livelihood and what we need. So what is your message then to the people in charge? What do you need to get through this next couple of weeks or this next wave that we're in right now? Uh, I think restaurant workers and restaurants in general just need an apology. Um, They were stigmatized very heavily. They need to have funding because to all of a sudden be told that by midnight, you will not be employed. Um, is really scary. Um, We're living in a city that's quite expensive and it's hard to get by already as it is. Um, So we need funding, we need help, and we need an apology. All right, Shiva, listen, good luck and thank you so much for sharing your story with us this morning. Thank you. Appreciate that. That's Shiva Reddy, a restaurant worker without work, as you heard her say, that this time around with the shutdown, I mean, understandable what we're in, but no supports this time, whereas last time there were definitely a lot more supports. And you know what? I share that frustration. She must have had so much frustration seeing people come in and with people that you knew were not in the same household and restaurant workers made the best of it and people still behaved badly. And now we get the situation that we find ourselves in.